This is not like TV, only better. It's only fair to pay for quality first-run movies. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. We are back for episode four of Screen Watching. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. I am Simon Foster, uh, managing editor of the Screen Space website, and with me is a gentleman who I admire often, uh, Dan Barrett. Welcome. Oh, gosh, I'm not used to such platitudes from you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my name's Dan Barrett. If you're doing plugs for your side, I'm going to do a plug for my newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching, yeah. and I'm the executive managing editing director of that. You just so made that up. Um, welcome to the show, everyone. We have got another very busy week here on Screen Watching. Lots happening in the world of screens, big and small. Um, where are we headed this week, Dan? Oh, look, we've got a lot going on this week. We've got a whole bunch of news we're going to kick off with. Uh, we're going to give our first thought, well, not our first thoughts. We've had many long thoughts about this, but we're going to talk mm-hmm. about our thoughts on the Justice League trailer and the series that's coming to HBO Max and, you know, that film that it existed a little while back. Uh, we're going to talk I about know it. of it. <laughs> yeah, people are talking. Uh, there's the new Disney streaming service called Star. We're going to talk about 10 new shows that have been announced for that and what that means about the whole future of Star and Disney Plus going forward. There's a new Wednesday Adams TV show. Martin Scorsese, he said some stuff this week. We've got an oh interview. Goodness, there's a man. brand new ABC Australian series called Why You Like This. It debuted during the week. And we're having a chat with the two stars of the show, Olivia Junkier and Naomi Higgins some reviews because we do that kind of thing on the podcast we're looking at minari firestarter for all mankind and gonna have a bit of a look back at last week's review of another round because i got around to that you've got views i've got views i've got opinions and look some people will say my opinions here pretty controversial but i'm gonna hold to them we're also going to wind out as we do every darn week with a look at the week ahead but simon shall we go first to news <music> Yes, the Zack Snyder Justice League extended version of the film that nobody liked the first time is coming to HBO Max. Now, I am a DC Universe tragic. I got to say, and I know this is going to get emails if we had an email address, that I love the DC Universe, um, probably more so than the Marvel Universe. I find it darker, more compelling, and um, I'm that one person in the world who likes Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch. So I'm down for Justice League. I'm hoping they give it a theatrical run here in Australia and in territories around the world. Listen, are you keen? Are you down? You've seen the trailer. Um, What appeals and what sort of uh, rubs you the wrong way? Okay, you refer to yourself as a DCU fan. Yes, I I have to say, do you like the DCU or do you just like the Zack Snyder DC films? So don't forget, DCU includes the two Wonder Woman films. It includes Aquaman. And is there anything else so far? I think that. Oh, and also you've got the Harley Quinn film and also Suicide Squad. Okay, so I'm down for that. That's all about me. I'm a big fan of the movies. I've said, stated over and over again that I've never been the comic comic book guy. Um, But certainly the films, I prefer for their darker look at the world and darker side than I do the MCU stuff. Yeah, so yeah, I've said it. Yeah, I grew up with DC Comics. I've been a lifelong comic book reader, and DC's always been my jam. A bit more than Marvel. I've occasionally dabbled in Marvel stuff, but it's never been quite my thing. I've kind of appreciated the ambition of the interlocked films of Marvel, but by and large, it's only been maybe the like last like three or four Marvel films that I've actually kind of really gotten into. Um, outside of that, I've liked the Captain America films. That's about it. But the DC stuff. It is much darker and it's very much infused with Zack Snyder's visual um, aesthetic 
And I have to say, mm. I'm not a big fan of things which feel like they're in large computer animated environments with slow-mo as heroes rush towards a big beam of light. I'm not really into that kind of thing. That's a Zack Snyder film. I mean, that is a Zack Snyder film, but <laughs> the elements of the Zack Snyder films where there's not the people running around in slow motion in those 3D environments, I really connect to that quite um, heavily. Mm, like, I think too. that there's a very sort of... I don't want to say necessarily a darker aesthetic, but there's definitely a more grounded aesthetic going on mm. in those films. And I particularly like the Superman Clark Kent character throughout the Zack Snyder DC films as well. I'm a big Superman Absolutely. guy, and we'll be talking about that a bit we later have, in this We podcast. have news on that later. We have got <laughs> some breaking news about our love for Superman. That'll be coming later in this segment as well. Look, I'm going to go on the record and say I, I'm not... There has been some... Um, kickback about how Zack Snyder films his female performers and his female characters, the difference between um, the Wonder Woman we know and love uh, from the Patty Jenkins films and how Zack Snyder makes a look are valid points. Um, it's There's a certain male gaze about what he does, which left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths about the, the Sucker Punch movie and some of the other work he's, he's been involved in. Um, that aside, and I don't want to push it aside, but that aside, um, I think what he's doing and how he's representing the the darker journey of Superman, the um, uh, the role that Ben Affleck's Batman plays in this, and a very exciting reemergence of Jared Leto's uh, Joker character in this film, who is copping a bit of flack for his use of a George Costanza line towards the end of the trailer. Um, I, I am really looking forward to it. I mean, who would have thought the trailer would end with him shouting out, Serenity now, Serenity now. But here we are. <laughs> Also, for some reason, no, look at for some reason, Zack Snyder's Joker keeps on turning up to parties with a jug of Pepsi. So, who knows? And then there's the Gore-Tex jacket. It's a lot of very sort of strange choices that I'm making. There is. So, we're looking forward to Justice League. Drops March 18 on HBO Max in the US. And we're keen to see how it's distributed around the rest of the world. Worth noting that I still believe that it hasn't been officially announced for Australia yet. Mm-hmm. So we're yet to find out exactly where we'll see the... Fingers crossed they do some, like, maybe the Asterid Grabbit or the Cremorne Orpheum or Randwick Ritz. They've had some um, Netflix content in the past. They've given a big screen run. So we'd love to see a couple of, you know, four-hour sessions of, of just... Oh, my God. Imagine watching that for four hours. That's always that's also very dependent on the distributor as well. So HBO sure. Max, obviously, Warner Brothers will be distributing it if they get any sort of theatrical look in the US and maybe in some international territories. But also, depending on who buys the rights to it in Australia, they may not want to see it play in cinemas because that will detract from their you know, exclusive streaming or broadcast of it. So who knows? We'll find out how this all plays. So I have to say, the one thing I'm looking forward to with the Zack Snyder Justice League is that it is his director cut full vision of it. So while I'm a little bit iffy on the Zack Snyderness of it all, I have to say the Batman vs. Superman director's cut is a far superior film to the theatrical version that we saw. The theatrical version, I thought, was definitely lacking in a lot of parts. But there was a lot of added texture that really came in with the director's cut of that Batman vs. Superman. And even watching that trailer, it felt like a much more rounded, fuller vision than what we had seen in that Joss Whedon version of the film that came out. So, I don't know. I I am excited to see this, but I'm a bit apprehensive. Dan, Disney have announced uh, a whopping 10 new projects coming out of Europe for their Disney Plus slash Star uh, a streaming platform. What can you tell us about that? This is your this is your scene, baby. Let's go. So this coming Tuesday in Australia, we're going to get a new streaming service called Star. It's going to be integrated into Disney Plus. So if you're already subscribed to Disney Plus, you get Star. If you just want Star, you're going to need to subscribe to Disney Plus because you can't get it without it. 
So essentially what's going to happen is on Tuesday, a box will pop up saying, hey, do you want Star on your Disney Plus? And you'll take yes because you're a listener to screen watching, which means that you like movies and TV shows. So you'll probably press that. You get all the stuff and it'll just integrate itself. It'll populate through the Disney Plus app. If you don't want it to populate through the app because you've got some kids that regularly watch the Disney Plus, you'll just get a little box at the top of the screen regularly next to where it says like Star Wars and Pixar and National Geographic. It'll say Star, you click into that, you get a whole bunch of additional things. Now, as part of the rollout of Star globally, everywhere except the US, uh, they're going to have a whole bunch of originals as well. Now, in the US, they'll probably get the originals by way of Hulu, but these are being made primarily as Star series. So the announcement this week was that they've got 10 originals coming from across Europe. They'll be making more announcements in terms of some UK originals, and no doubt there'll be some stuff coming from the US or Canada in some form, but we'll see exactly what they do in regards to making stuff for Star uh, by and large, you're going to find that things that are made for Hulu in the US will make their way to Star. So that's kind of that North American component. But we are talking mm-hmm. the European stuff. And there were 10 things that were announced. And I'm just going to rush through these quickly because there's nothing that seems super exciting. But the thing that's maybe surprising to me about these 10 announcements is that these aren't necessarily things that you think of as being sort of Disney shows. Instead, this feels more like the sort of originals that you're finding for Netflix or Amazon Prime Video uh, the things like there's Soprano Sing or Die, which is a documentary on a French rapper named Soprano. Uh, that's a six-episode series. There's a show called, uh, and I think this is French. Yeah, it'd have to be. And so I'm going to butcher it because I can't do French. Uh, Osakine, and it's a four-part series talking about the events of December 5, 1986, which led to the death of a young student. And that's likely a thing that people in France know quite well that I've got no real idea about. Um, coming out of France as well, they've got two Disney Plus originals. So there's a show called Parallels, which is a six-part fantasy adventure series about some teenagers, and another show called Weekend Family. And those two both sound very Disney. Uh, then there's a couple of Italian shows they've commissioned. There's The Good Mothers, being made for Star, and it's a six-part series about three courageous women inside the mafia working with a yada yada. It, it doesn't really matter. We'll find out in a couple of months' time when these actually start rolling out. Uh, There's The Ignorant Angels, which is a a series inspired by an Italian film called Le Fair Ignorati. I'm sure I butchered that. You Um, handled that beautifully. That's coming. Uh, There's a show called Boris, which is a show within a show. Uh, It's about the behind the scenes of a low budget medical drama series. Uh, The thing that's probably getting most attention is a show called Sam, which is a German series. And what's exciting about that is that it's coming from the creator of Deutschland 83. And if anyone's watched Deutschland um, 83, 86, and 89, uh, they're three really compelling series. Uh, so you've got that series, and it's about a real-life guy who was East Germany's first black police officer. And that sounds interesting. Uh, you've got a show called Souls and City, which is a dark comedy. And from the Netherlands, there's also a show which is going behind the scenes of a Dutch soccer club. So you can sort of see here, like, these aren't necessarily things you would think of as being Disney properties, but they are very much you know, just sort of standard series making their way over to Star. Now, Netflix in their early days or one of their initiatives early on was to uh, ramp up production uh, of original content, as you as you touched on there, in territories all around the world to, to um, make sure they not only met production quotas in those territories to have that sort of, to have a sort of presence there, but to ensure that they had specific content for those audiences and, and were able to strengthen their hold in, in those markets. Is is this a similar sort of initiative from Disney? Is this sort of a, a, a 
bonding the production community of these countries with the uh, pay television and with the streaming platform? So here's the thing. When I saw that Disney Plus was rolling out globally, I looked at that as a streaming service that was heavily tied to Disney IP. And I really saw Disney Plus as struggling to really break away from that. And if you think about the reasons mm. people subscribe to Disney Plus, it's to get their Marvel shows, it's to get their Star Wars, it's to get their Disney princesses. Yep. You know, it's the very traditional Disney IP that people are subscribing to that service for. But once you've inserted Star into it, I think you've got a bit of a different proposition. And keep in mm. mind, in Star, we're getting it as part of Disney Plus. But then in other parts of the world, it's going to be a standalone service and it's a little bit flexible in how that's actually rolling out globally. So because this is 20th Century Fox, which is really a lot of standard sort of drama fare, so it's not necessarily as heavily tied to established IP in that same way, I think there is definitely going to be a need to have some original series, particularly coming from... Look, I've never been Italian and spoken the Italian language, but I would imagine no. that there's a different experience for me in Australia where culturally we're very similar to the US in so many ways. The language is mostly the same with a few like anachronistic sort of aspects aside, but you know the experience isn't really ultimately that different. But if I'm Italian and I'm just getting a constant stream of just US fare, I'm probably a little bit more distanced from it than I'd say we are in Australia. So it's probably important in a place where you don't speak English to have content coming from there that actually sort of feels of you. So it makes more sense to me that they are pushing out, particularly through these European European nations, to try to create some local content, both for that market, but also to create an international feeling for the service. So there was an interesting comment from the guy running Warner Media at the moment as they start looking to expand out the HBO Max service globally. And the one thing he said was that we need to look at what we're doing in terms of our IP and see how we can actually start translating that out. So Warner Brothers, which is obviously a lot more like the Fox model of things, which is standard drama fare and it's not necessarily as IP tied as Disney is specifically, something like that, you could easily see them commissioning a whole bunch of shows like this. But it sounds to me like the HBO Max model might be saying, hey, how can we look at some of our DC Comics characters and take those characters internationally? where it appears that Disney isn't doing that. And that's what surprised me, because that's fully what I expected to see here from those 10 announcements. I expected to see, hey, look, here's a Marvel character from somewhere across Europe, and that's that series. Sure. Or also, the thing is, like, Disney's IP, like traditional old-school Disney, so much of it's based off things like Hans Christian Andersen, I fully expected to see an actual European princess story or something like that come from... You know, somewhere there. Bound to happen. But I'm sure that Bound will happen, happen, but it's not part of this original slate, which is kind of surprising to me. But it's exciting mm. to see they're doing this, and I'm keen to see what these shows are actually like. Have I missed the press release that says that Disney are going to do this down here in Australia? Can we expect uh, 10 projects being announced that the Australian production sector will, will jump all over? Here's the thing, and this is what I've been saying about Netflix and all these international streaming services all along, and it ties into exactly what I was saying about the cultural differences between the US and Australia not being that great. I think you'll find that the streaming services, by and large, have been fairly reluctant to want to produce an Australian series, purely because what's the point? Uh, these shows are made so they can actually travel globally, and while, yes, it's probably okay for the Australian production sector to say, hey, look, we're giving you some jobs and getting that, for, uh, that happening forward, it makes more sense for Disney to say, hey, look, and doing exactly what they're doing, which is let's make the new Thor film in Sydney, let's produce some stuff in Australia, but for all intents and purposes, it would just be an American production, but filmed here. Because why necessarily run to the world with an Australian production? Because anything you produce here is just going to feel like a lightweight version of a US thing. There's no cultural mm -hmm. difference. There's such little... Um, 
value, I guess, in a global Australian series traveling when you could just have a US series traveling. It's why I don't know. There's been some very successful Australian content go overseas. I mean, just recently, the um, some of the, the producer Steve Jaggy has, has made has brought a Disney actress down here and made a couple of very successful streaming. Um, released films to to, the, to those countries with very Australian content. You've hit one of the points I want to get to, but before I get to that, in just one sec, um, I was going to say it's the same reason why you don't see much Canadian stuff necessarily being commissioned by the big streamers. Yes, you get the occasional Canadian success story, like a Letter Kenny, for example, but like that's one show out of you know Canada makes a lot of TV, and in a time mm. of COVID, you're starting to see those shows being picked up. They're not commissioning these shows, but they're licensing those shows. And that's probably what you're going to start seeing more, more co-productions, which is what's been happening. But it's not necessarily Netflix footing the entire bill for something. It's not necessarily Disney fitting the entire bill for something. Now, the one thing that Australia does very well is kids content, okay, which is what I believe that you're mm. talking about there. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Disney maybe commission a kids show like that. But, you know, let's see how it all sort of uh, plays out over the next couple of years. But I wouldn't say that Australia is necessarily a priority for them to get Australian content out to the world. Five words, my friend. Baywatch on the Gold Coast. It's going to happen. <laughs> you heard it here on Screen Watching First. I'm picking it. That's where they should shoot it. Okay, um, moving on to uh, the announcement that a Wednesday Adams live action series has been ordered at Netflix. Variety has reported that um, this uh, project was put into development back in October last year, um, and it's only been announced, and I guess the most exciting part of this is that Tim Burton is attached to direct um, if ever there was a uh, connection uh, based upon the, uh, a director's past work. It's Tim Burton um, and the Wednesday Adams character. Uh, she was essentially Winona Ryder in Beetlejuice. Um, and if he gets to expand on that and do some really good work. It's been a while between drinks for, for Tim Burton. Um, I'm a huge fan, of course. Uh, and I'm hoping that the creativity that Netflix should allow him and the freedom to really uh, work that imagination over it might be refreshing for him and, and, and the series uh, is is worth picking up on, probably filling the gap that something like Sabrina has left. Um, I can see it sort of filling that, uh, filling that void, but there's lots of talk to come on that. Okay, so the things that kind of cotton that sort of I wanted to glom onto here, the Sabrina of it all, I found it very interesting that show just suddenly seemed to have gone away. Like, it, it didn't yes. really seem like it was aiming to end anytime soon, but then suddenly they just mm. announced an end to it. So I'm wondering if the announcement of a Wednesday Addams series may have played a part in their decision to wind it down maybe slightly earlier than they otherwise would have. You're a mm. bit more enthusiastic about the Tim Burton of this. Because the mm -hmm. thing I would say is that Tim Burton, probably only on board for the, as the director for the pilot episode and then steering some of the visual cues for the rest of the series, I don't I think, think so. he's going to be directing every episode of this. I'd say it will be just sort no. of more workman directors coming along for this. Uh, the problem with this is that I don't have their names in front of me. It's like Al Goff and um, something rather Miller, the two guys that are actually running the program. These guys, like they made Smallville for like 11 seasons. That might be one of the worst TV shows I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Oh, I, I really do not care for that program in the slightest. And based yeah. off that, them running this series, that does not instill me with a huge amount of hope. And Tim Burton, okay. as much as I like Tim Burton through the 80s into the 90s, I have to say it's been a long time since I've really enjoyed a Tim Burton joint. So I, I don't know. I totally agree. Yeah. I'm, like, I've definitely checked this out because how could I not watch a Wednesday Adams show? But at the same time, like, I'm definitely a bit skeptical. Casting will be crucial, absolutely. Um, and finally, in, in our news segment, I want to touch on uh, something that's copped a bit of 
coverage on social media through the week. Uh, the great director, Martin Scorsese, um, wrote an essay for Harper's Bazaar uh, in what was essentially a love letter to f- the great Italian director, Federico Fellini, but he opened up the um, the article with a few paragraphs about the state of, well, not just cinema at the moment, but movie making and movie going in general, in which he took to task the uh, watching um, habits of uh, the modern movie watcher and the use of algorithms by uh, the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world to constantly recommend the same sort of movies to you because you like this, you may like this kind of um, uh, screen messages. Um, he opened the article with this beautifully evocative sort of recounting of a stroll along the, the cinema district of 8th Street in New York City in 1959 in which you had to look at the marquees to choose from the latest Kurosawa or choose from the latest Goddard or see the new Claude Chabrol film. And he painted this extraordinarily romantic picture of of movie going back in the time. And then he moved into a, a few paragraphs where he really questioned... Um, quote-unquote content as he's written it it became and i'm quoting from the article here it became a business term for all moving images whether that's a david lean movie a cat video a super bowl commercial a superhero sequel um it was linked of course not to the theatrical experience but to home viewing on the streaming platforms that have come to overtake the movie going experience just as amazon overtook physical stores he's suggesting that part of the joy of cinema um from the making of the films to the watching of the films, is that freedom of choice, is curation. Um, and he cites um, sites like Mubi and the Criterion Channel, which actually curate uh, their lineup, their programs, and that you get to choose those. Um, but in the end, the growth of cinema, the, the, the ongoing uh, gestation of cinema, if you, if you want to put it that way, um, is being curtailed because filmmakers are trying to fit into a mould set by Netflix and Amazon um, based on their most popular films and really challenging works are being pushed to the margin. Got a huge response from the social media set, of course. Um, uh, I I would also say that perhaps uh, coincidentally a tweet came up through the week from a gentleman named Rick Royas who spoke of a rule that he has in movie watching never to watch anything before 1975 he broke that rule to watch citizen kane and he said it was like watching hieroglyphics of course people like me went crazy film nuts who watch movies from all eras um and and stated that 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 perhaps speaks to what kubrick's talking about but it was a really interesting point that and it's a beautiful article that that scorsese wrote um and i'll put it on the facebook page um, after we publish this podcast and, and you can have a read of it and then come back and, and, and have a listen. So um, good on you, Martin Scorsese, for speaking up. I'm on your side. I know a lot of the younger listeners may not be, but um, let the chips fall where they may. Look, the, I haven't read the article yet, but from what you've sort of said about it there, it sounds like there's a bit of rose-coloured glasses going involved. Like I'm thinking about like walking down the streets of New York in 1959 and sure, you could look up at the marquee scene, 400 Blows is playing. But also in 1959, there's also the Shaggy Dog playing, or Operation Petticoat, or Pillows Hawk, or the Nun All of story. which have value, but all to his point, all of which have um, uh, audiences that they were seeking and were making creative decisions to find that audience. And and the point he was making in his article was that that's been taken away from both the filmmaker and the viewer. But I would also say that that same experience of seeing the marquees, like. 
I, I'm just saying that like focusing on the art films of the time is also taking away from the fact there was just like a glut of other stuff around, but there's definitely a glut nowadays of content. But is the lack of curation experience that exists on a streaming service really any different to the experience that viewers have going to a multiplex since like the late 80s, early 90s? It does feel that the idea of the big marquee film that's playing in that theatre that has just two screens is really quite different when you suddenly you've got 10 to 15 to 20 screens in the one complex. And really it's just like film after film after film of things you haven't really heard before. And is that really any difference loading up Netflix and then suddenly finding you've got film after film after film of things you haven't really necessarily heard of before? The point he, but the point he's making is that the risk you take, the challenge to you as a film watcher, is taken away because all those things that you come, that that you're suggesting that come up that you haven't seen before, they're all based. It's it's the algorithm that's hurting the industry. Uh, they're no, all no, based. I, on I get what he's saying. I'm just before. saying it's not new. I'm just saying this has been a part of cinema going now for, you know, almost my entire lifetime. So like the lack of curation and there's always been curated experiences. Go to New York. There are still some amazing theaters that are curating stuff. Hell in Sydney, we've got a couple of great theaters like the Ritz and the Orpheum, for example, that regularly curates um, retrospectives and really go out there to, you know, highlight interesting films that I've got out there. But that's not the mainstream movie going experience. And in the same way that you've got your movies and your Criterion channels in the US, which we don't, oh, we do have movie in Australia, we don't have Criterion. But in the way they've got mm. those curating, like then you've just got your large multiplexes, which is your Netflix and your Amazon Prime. So I don't know, I think that still exists. It's just that I guess maybe perception of how you are approaching cinema is a little bit different when you're not physically going to the place and instead you're more in that digital space. I think the point he's making is that it's dictated to you by the the, the, the streaming platforms and the use of algorithms, whereas there was still a vast element of choice in in. in his formative years i and i absolutely agree that the article starts and is written from a, a rose-colored glasses point of view the romanticism of cinema which is something he's always preached and which i've always preached as well i know you and i come at it from different angles in terms of you being an early adapter and of, of new content and new platforms and new viewing experiences and me being a a um a, a, a sort of a watcher of the older films in the traditional method so it's a I, you know, I think there's valid points there and, and probably worth having another chat about if you read the article and, and maybe come back. There's there's plenty of stuff in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not disagreeing, Scorsese. I just kind of think that there are other elements to consider and it's quite easy to get a bit narrow and focused with the glasses on. Dan, there's a new show on ABC TV Plus or you can binge it on ABC iView. It's called Why Are You Like This? Uh, what can you tell us about it and who are we speaking to? Uh, look, this is a brand new TV show, so this debuted on Tuesday. Uh, it's a series written by some 20-somethings out of Melbourne. It's called Why You Like This, and it's a short-run series that is kind of interesting in that it's kind of what we were talking about earlier in terms of your Netflix of the world investing in Australian content. Netflix are globally distributing this, but the local production is coming from the ABC. Uh, it's definitely a low-budget kind of a series, very much in the mould of shows like Broad City. So if you're familiar with Broad City, you're not going to find that this is a massive creative leap away from that. But it's, I would say that the approach of Broad City was very much about two girls where the world was always uh, dumping on them in one way or another. And they suddenly, their behavior had a certain element to play in their lack of ability to find success in the world. But what's kind of fun about this series is that every problem these girls have is absolutely on their shoulders. And it's a really fun series to see. It's kind of like Broad City meets Curb Your Enthusiasm. 
where you've got these two young women who are trying to find their way in the world. You've got one girl who sees injustice in every woke way possible and is out there to try to um, quell them where she can. But of course, she's always misguided in a way that she's managed to a way of approaching things as opposed to how things actually work when you're dealing with real people face to face. And then you've got her friend uh, played by Olivia Junk here. And she's someone who wears her work credentials on her um, sleeve. As a woman of color, she goes out there talking about the way that she suffers in the world. But it's absolutely because she's incredibly lazy and just does not want to really lift a finger to do anything to better herself or better those around her. It's an incredibly fun series. It sounds like a lot of fun. You uh, you got the toss of the coin this week, and you got to talk to Olivia Junkier and Naomi Higgins, stars of Why You Like This. Let's have a listen. Olivia, Naomi, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, thanks for, having, for us. having us. Okay, now I've just watched the first episode, and I've got this real sense of Broad City from the concept of the show, but I was wondering how you arrived at the turn of it. Because your show, unlike Broad City, it's not really about young people being shut on by a difficult world. Rather, you get the real sense that on this show... All the problems they have is 100% their own doing. And I was just wondering how you came to that as opposed to being the victims. <laughs> I think, um, you know, there are a lot of shows that have heart and are about, you know, fighting through stuff. Whereas I guess we have a more pessimistic view of the world in that we're, we're of the belief that everyone's awful um, and that you should take a look in the mirror and... <laughs> You know, stop stop seeing yourself in protagonists that are just doing their best because um, there's the other side to it that um, maybe everyone's a piece of shit and that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it was also a lot more fun that way, I think, for everyone involved. Oh, look, absolutely. Yeah. It caused me all the issues. <laughs> yeah. Now, you're kind of using the show as a commentary on the characters, either buying too far into workness or they're using workness as a shield to hide the fact that they're just really kind of shitty people. Uh, it's a take that I think cuts really, really deep. And I was wondering how much blowback you think you're going to get from an audience who aren't really used to seeing themselves on screen like this. Well, I don't know if I'd say that we're like having a go at wokeness. You know, I generally believe in all those ideals. I would more say that we're just like poking fun at ourselves and that you can sort of, you can have any sort of belief system, you know, it could be a religion. It could be these political correctness things. They can be used for good and for bad. And I think that people have always been like this and always will be like this. It's just what tools do they have at their disposal? And for these young adults the tools that they have at their disposal is like <laughs> microaggressions and twitter cool so i wasn't sure if olivia wanted to jump in no i was gonna just leave nom on that one i was gonna leave <laughs> Liv's like i you're right i don't want to get cancelled and i don't want to try to do oh, it now i'm like i'm like nervous about i, I was about to, i'm nervous about that stuff because obviously my character takes everything to the extreme and so does noms but um, there's just lots of topics about religion and stuff that I've been nervous about um, in terms of how people are going to react to it. So I just thought I'd let Nom to take the right <laughs> I mean, we're never going to please everyone, but I guess the aim of the show is to make it true to us. Like we're not trying to be offensive for offensive sake. These are real conversations that we have um, or that, are, you know, real opinions that we have or don't have or that we think it's funny to talk about. Um, we're not just being edgy for edgy's sake and we tried not to put anything in the show that we couldn't justify to ourselves. Yeah, I think in a way when I was talking about the idea of the show using the characters buying too far into workness, it's probably more about the fact that they've bought into the idealism as to what that represents and it may be corrupted a little bit by their idealism going forward. So that's certainly the case with Naomi's character, but Olivia's character I think is definitely using things as a shield. 
<laughs> yeah, and I also think that she only like um, Mia only really cares about herself, and so she only really uses the tools when it works for her and to get her where she needs to be in the situation. So I'd say that she's a little bit more relaxed on what's politically correct or not, but she'll use it to her advantage when need be. Uh, you made a reference earlier to the language in the show. Now, obviously, your character is probably the most sort of bold and brash when it comes to dropping a few F-bombs and C-bombs throughout the first episode. Are you concerned about how that's going to reflect on you culturally? No, I haven't really... Th- I mean, I'm quite comfortable with swearing and stuff like that. I mean, in my day-to-day <laughs> life, I do it a lot. Um, but what about but, on the on the trailer? There's like comments being like, "Oh my god, hearing Yashvi from Neighbours swear is like I know. my mind spinning." <laughs> I I would say that I have a really terrible potty mouth, so I'm quite comfortable with that. Um, yeah, there's like eight f words used in the trailer just from me, <laughs> um, and I've I've never really thought about it. I, I, I that was brought to my attention by somebody else. I didn't even I didn't even think it was that bad. But um, yeah, I didn't notice either. Yeah, I did. I've I've never really had a yeah swearing was it was more like the context of what I was talking about. Usually, I was like, oh god, this could be an issue later on or something like that. But never, never might have opinions about this. (laughs) Yeah, but the swearing was never really an issue for me. Uh, What about the origin of the show? How did you get the interest of the ABC? Um, Well, the show was born from um, Fresh Blood, which is an initiative. Um, of ABC and Screen Australia so um, we we applied for the first round of that which is where they commissioned 20 web series Um, and then we made the web series um, and then from that we got one of four pilots so we did that and then from that we got the tv show in the end Um, and in getting the tv show we were able to pitch it to Netflix and um, they they went in on it with us, so it turned out to be a co-production with ABC Screen Australia and Netflix um, to air on ABC in Australia and then Netflix the rest of the world, which is, like, so cool. So basically everyone can watch it unless they're in China or North Korea, but what are you going to do? <laughs> it's a shame because I think those really are your core audiences. <laughs> I think they might like it. <laughs> Were there any sort of notes that you were given from the ABC that were a little bit different when you came to making the show versus when you were doing it through Fresh Blood? Well, I guess it all, it's still technically through uh, flesh, Fresh Blood. <laughs> um, uh, but no, they, honestly, they were, I think people in general can talk about like, you know, networks giving too many notes and stuff like that um, and like getting in the way, but they really didn't. Like they they raised um, a few things, like Netflix raised a couple of things that we didn't put in the show because they were like this, you can do whatever you want, but this just might get a really bad reaction. And and so there were things that we considered like, is the, is the point we're making worth it to, you know, potentially piss a lot of people off and some of the things weren't we were like you know that's just a throwaway joke we can get rid of that but really the ABC did encourage us to go for it and I think we maybe expected there to be more notes on the things we'd written and they were like yeah no worries and we were like okay <laughs> uh with the Netflix notes were they sort of made sort of core idea like obviously you said that it was like throwaway jokes but was it sort of made with language or was it really with I guess maybe more thematic ideas that they were interested in 
thematic ideas because this goes to the whole world you know um there's a whole episode about ramadan so um you know islam can still is still a sensitive topic <laughs> across the world yeah, funny i don't that. know you've heard about this um <laughs> but you know there's there's people on both sides of this well I, there's not even two sides of the spectrum there's people with a lot of different opinions um about religion and that religion specifically and so um hum one of the other writers who's muslim you know she's writing from her experience but um I, I guess it's sort of balancing. You don't want to just upset everyone for no reason. We never want to do that. But also um, was writing to her experience, which is not going to be every single Muslim's experience. You know, the same way if you were writing from a Christian point of view, you know, like in Fleabag when she has sex with a priest. I'm sure there's people who didn't appreciate that. <laughs> um, but it's But that doesn't make it any less valid an experience. Yeah. Now, are you more excited about the show being available on TV or the fact it'll be on iView slash Netflix globally? Oh, yeah. I mean, we're <laughs> under 30, so we <laughs> I'm way more excited about the streaming element of it. I don't even have my TV hooked up to the aerial, but it's exciting that the people who still do That's watch TV terrible. can get to watch it as well. I moved house. Okay. I don't have the right adapter. I haven't gotten around to it. Sometimes I watch live channels, but I'm I'm getting it up on my laptop and then casting that to the TV, um, which is I think what a lot of young people do if they ever watch live TV. Um, so we're we're really pushing for people to watch it on iView, and I think that's where it'll find its audience is on iView, and then yeah, Netflix. Yeah, you can also binge it on iView and Netflix, which I think is really important nowadays as well. And I'm well, I'm not personally a fan of watching something week to week. No, we, we're we've not grown used to it, have we? <laughs> we're like, where's the next? Part? I'm like, and also ads. I'm not about any ads. Like, I can't deal with it. Uh, so, are you talking yet about a season two? Um, I mean, to each other for sure. <laughs> we don't know anything yet. Um, <laughs> we'll have to see if people watch it, I guess, and if they like it, which I'm sure they will. But we definitely have some ideas. I think the fun thing about this show is um, that the characters aren't good people. And um, it, when you're writing anything, the idea is to put your character through hell, I think, especially for comedy, because that's what's funny. And there's no end to the amount of things that we could put these characters through to just, you know, <laughs> screw with them. And yeah, they deserve it. So no one cares. <laughs> Uh, now, just sort of wrapping things up, the first episode has a truly astonishing scene in it with a cow urinating right next to the camera. At the risk of destroying the magic of the screen, I assume this was prosthetic cow bits. Or is it actually a real cow? That was, are you talking about when the cow's peeing? Yeah, is that a real the, cow? That, that was completely by accident. <laughs> that was just by chance. We were filming, that's a real cow. We were, <laughs> were filming, and I'm not, I'm not a huge animal, animal person. And oh my god, is, Liv was terrified of those cows. Terrified. They were like, like they put me in the what do you like the den and the uh, there was like six cows or something like that, and they put one of the cows into where they had the cage to they tag the cows. I think that's the cage where they put them in. Mm. The cow was just banging, banging, and banging, wanting to get out, and I was freaked out trying to do this scene. And the cow finally just relaxed, and we. <laughs> said action and then just as we finished the tag the cow just started peeing in the middle of the tag and it was brilliant the cow really <laughs> relaxed yeah it was amazing it worked so well we would, i was like i was trying not to break the scene because i was like oh my god i can't believe this cow's pissing right now it's so brilliant <laughs>
Because the comedic timing of that scene is absolutely spot on and your reaction to it, like you're not even really rea- like reacting at all to it. So I assume yes, this is purely a prosthetic. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Like I was <laughs> trying so hard to hold it. It was completely by coincidence. Yeah. And our, and our cinematographer, Shelley, um, you know, he just, he just gets it. He's such an important part of the process. And he just like panned the camera over. Like, so it was focused on that. It just, it beautiful, really worked. You can tell Liv is a professional, I think. <laughs> in that scene. Me wanting to get that stuff over and done with, because I really was freaked out by the cows. <laughs> yeah. Get it in one shot so I can get out of here and the cow can get yeah. out of here. Excellent. Well, guys, I'm really into the show. As soon as I finish this, I'm going to binge through all the episodes I got available to me because this is, look, I went into it expecting to hate it because anything I think I'm going to kind of like, I immediately just assume I'm going to hate going in, but I'm totally into this. You've got me. Oh, thank you, Dan. That's so nice. (laughs) It's such a jerk thing to say. Uh, But guys, thanks so much. I really appreciate (laughs) it. No, that's good because I know that we we didn't have you on board at the start, so we really won you over. That's much better for my self-esteem, to be honest. (laughs) So I mentioned in the interview there that I had gone into the series expecting not to like it because that's my standard sort of stance when it comes to most TV shows, but also particularly when it comes to Australian productions, there's just been enough bad ones over the years where I've gone into it with a fair bit of optimism only to walk away saying, I kind of see the effort, but like, it's just not really that funny. This is incredibly funny. Like I laughed out loud a number of times throughout the half hour. And yes, I think the comparisons to Broad City are definitely fair like it very much comes from the mold of broad city and if broad city hadn't been around i'm not sure this would necessarily be in the shape that it is but i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing i think it's good to have different voices playing around in a very similar space and this is distinctive and it's original and it's funny the performances are really good the writing i thought the narrative structure of it was maybe a little bit samey things that we've sort of seen before but the energy and enthusiasm coming to it is so different and so infused with a sense of really cynical, nasty joy. I tapped into it really nicely. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it as yet. I'm keen to check it out and I will be checking it out in the in the, the days ahead based on that interview and, and your recommendation of it. New voices on screen, new perspectives, um, seeing young women have their say and put their thoughts and views forward on screen is something I'm all for. So this is, uh, I'll be watching it. During the week, I was on a, I guess, maybe a fairly conservative radio station, 4BC, where I do a regular segment there on Sunday mornings. And I did recommend this as a show that people should check out. And I'm wondering how that audience will go with what's some fairly profane language that goes through it. And when I say fairly profane, I'm saying the words that you don't usually hear on TV are certainly on display on this one. Dan Barrett declaring his ultra right wing conservative viewpoints there everyone to screen watching let's move into the review segment Minari is the story of a young Korean family who have hopes and dreams of creating their own American uh, experience their own American dream with a block of land that they hope to uh, plow under with Korean vegetables you better take a look at this this is old money it's Korean war money yes sir I was there it's a hard time. I'm sure you know. Hey, you won't take it? David, <laughs> what do you say? You know, it's funny. The minute I saw you, I knew we were going to be friends. Stephen Ewan plays the father in this. He is extraordinary in the lead role. All the acting across the board in this very emotional, at times very funny film um, uh, are just wonderful. This is the sort of film which makes 
great filmmaking look easy. It's such a simply told, simply shot story um, without any pretension. Uh, but right at the surface are all these beautiful, complex emotions that, um, although it being an Asian family experience, a Korean family experience in a new America, um, are totally universal. And it is getting the sort of acclaim that universal emotions and and um, and like-minded experiences for, for immigrants all around the world conjure. I, I loved Minari. Um, I think it was a, a film that deserves all the awards um, and and a, a great percentage of the movie-going dollar as well. So get along to see Minari. Now, you've seen it, Dan. Your views? Look, I watched this one last night. I think it's very good. There was a strange thing that I experienced while watching it, which is that... I've, I've got such a bugbear about most TV shows that come along, which is like this sort of nine or 10 episode series that it kind of feels like it should just be a movie. Like there's so many films that would be better served as a 90 to 120 minute story rather than be this terrible serialized thing where I have to wait four episodes for it to get good and then it's kind of okay and then just kind of ends. I was watching Minari and I thought this would actually be maybe better served as a TV show. Like I'd really be there to see these characters because I love these characters. I really like the way the actors portrayed each of them. Like they felt like real lived in characters, each and every one of them. Mm -hmm. Like there's not yep. a church that's uh, like 50 minutes away or something like that. So it's too far for them to really engage with that church on a regular basis. I'd kind of like to see the episode where they go to that church and then suddenly find they have some issues with the community they don't really quite fit in. And so that's why they're back at the Western church that they're at. Like it just kind of felt like there were some very small lo-fi stories that existed within this world. And I just wanted to explore them a little bit more. I just want to spend more time with these characters and go through those moments in their lives. I don't doubt that there's a great ex extension of this story that could take TV show format. It's... um. Yes, it's beautifully cinematic, but it's also told in a way that doesn't draw attention to its its stunning cinematography or its beautiful direction by um, a great young director called Lee Isaac Chung, who's basically telling his own American experience. This is his, this is in part his story, his family story. So um, I think those moments you speak of have impact for me because they were small moments. They appear at the time as small moments in these people's lives, but what this film does is focus in on the consequences and the uh, ramifications of those small moments, both on their, their journey to be uh, homeowners and, and um, but also to be Asian Americans experiencing that. So um, in every frame of this film, there's love. Uh, there's great support performances. You mentioned the young boy, Alan, Alan S. Kim. He plays David and he has some of the biggest laughs in the film in a very natural way. Um, also the great character actor, Will Patton, who seems to have been around for a hundred years. He is fantastic as the, the born again, Christian Paul. Um, he has some great lines in the film as well. Uh, he's really the only name in the cast other than Stephen Ewan, who we know from the walking dead. And um, I think for me, this is just one of the most uh, lovely films of the year. Um, yes, you'll have to deal with some subtitling if you're a serious screen watcher, and we know you are because you're on this podcast. That won't be a problem. All the 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 reality of this family's life uh, comes through in both good and bad ways. So uh, check out Minari. You'll hear about it more as the award season revs up. It's going to get a lot of nominations from a lot of the bodies. So um, so do check it out. Next up for me is a wonderful new Australian documentary called Firestarter about the uh, Bangara Dance Theatre Troupe. You can't tell the story of Aboriginal Australia without featuring Bangara. The thing we loved the most was our culture and was feeding that through a contemporary expression. It was time to have a black company in Australia. 
This is the story of the Page brothers, David, Stephen and Russell Page, who uh, came out of a Brisbane suburb and built, uh, reconnected with their, their cultural roots, their indigenous roots, and then from that launched the Bangara Dance Theatre. Um, it captures their early years going through a few different indigenous theatre groups and, and dance companies until they were finally given the opportunity to, to uh, launch the Bangara Dance Troupe in Sydney um, in the early 80s. It's a very moving, very powerful story that captures beautiful dance, um, but also the tragedy of um, coming to terms with being displaced, with having connections to the stolen generation, um, being an Indigenous person trying to make it in a typically uh, white uh, theatrical community, the kickback they got from that, also the support they got from a lot of the artists at the time, um, some of the critical backlash that happened when they tried to introduce Indigenous dance moves and themes into into modern theatre and modern dance. Um, at the heart of this, and it's got a lot of heart, this, this film, um, is the connection between the brothers, the tragedy that they had to go through, the elation they went through when they... they um, were put in charge of the Indigenous uh, component of the Sydney Olympics opening ceremony um, and how the, the, the journey towards um, the present day life that they lead um, is infused by the success of the Bangara Theatre Company, how they've been accepted, how they've been able to present their own Indigenous culture um, and what it means to, to Indigenous cultures throughout Australia and, and the Torres Strait Islands. Um, Stunning dance, very emotional, beautiful film. It's called Firestarter um, in limited release around Australia. Now, very quickly, I just want to talk about a series that's currently running on Apple TV+. Plus. It's called For All Mankind. Why don't you tell me what you're building over there at Svezda? I've seen all the regulars you're kicking up. Huh? What are you building over there? I can't tell you. Didn't think so. You need to let me go. My competitors will be looking for me soon. You know, see, I'm not that concerned about your compatriots, because I know you got one rover just like us, and it's over here. So if your compatriots want to come looking for you, they wouldn't get very far, now would they, Ivan? For All Mankind, this is a series from creators Ronald D. Moore, who people would know from your Battlestar Galacticas. Uh, also, he's got a bit of a history with Star Trek, mm. I think Deep Space Nine and Voyager from memory. Uh, also, Ben Nadevi and Matt Wolpert. What this show is, is, and we should say season one of it debuted late last year, uh, season two of it debuts as of this afternoon, but it's probably a great opportunity to go back and watch the first season because in Apple TV fashion, this will roll out weekly. So I don't know how many episodes we get today, like if it's two or three episodes and it goes weekly from here, we'll find out, uh, but it will be weekly. So you've got plenty of time to catch up with it all before we hit the end of a season two. Season one though, the premise of it is basically... We know about the U.S. space race. What would happen if... Because obviously U.S. space race, there was a race for a reason because Russia was also trying to get people into space and get people to the moon. The U.S. got the first man on the moon, but what if the Russians beat the U.S. to getting a man on the moon by 11 days? And so what that does is it kicks off an entirely new look at mm. the Cold War, where instead of the Cold War, as we know it in our world, to have been very much focused around nuclear armament, what if instead it was based around space exploration and just trying to best each other at getting people out there? What that does is it places a really interesting shift on the way that we view culture. Because if you think about the, and obviously if you Simon, you can think back to this time, but through the 1950s and into the 60s, uh, you've got funny. the issue that uh, astronauts were like your major, they were like sports stars. 
like these were people that you looked up to and were really heavily integrated yeah. into day-to-day life as major cultural icons. What if that continues? And so what happens here is that you've got man lands on the moon first for like Russians land on the moon first. And then the question becomes who can put the first woman on the moon? So the US try to do that. The Russians end up doing it. The Russians mm. end up beating them there as well. But the result of them trying to get the first woman on the moon means that you've got female astronauts who are suddenly part of the cultural zeitgeist. And so they become celebrities and heroes in their own right, which then pushes forward feminism in a way that we never quite saw in our world. Like it certainly went forward, but not with the gusto that this has. And so you're seeing over this 20 year period, which is Mm. a time of immense change, particularly in the US, it's immense change culturally. What happens if that's even amplified further? And you start seeing technology and the culture move forward. And as we enter season two now, we're in this radically different place where space travel has evolved beyond really where we're at now. Okay, but then also culture is in quite a different place as well. And so we're seeing these thread of what could have been based on just the Americans having a bit of a setback in the mid to late 60s. You brought this series to my attention because season two was coming around. I knew of it. Um, in another world, I'm the festival director of the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival, so I certainly know that it exists. Um, but when I binged a few episodes last night in preparation for for this chat, I was blown away by the version of America that it presented, um, this alternate version that, that happens when the, the Soviet Union beats the, the US into space, um, and then the introduction of the the female cosmonaut character at the end of season two, of end of episode two of season one. Um, I can't wait for for uh, season two. Uh, I've got a few episodes to binge out season one, and it is a beautifully made, terrific looking film. Um, great acting, uh, notably for Michael Dorman, young Aussie actor in a US role um, as one of the uh, slightly shamed, slightly immoral astronauts. And Joel Kinnaman in the lead is is just fantastic. So yeah, I, I'm buzzing for this. It's uh, Maybe flowing under the radar a bit of a few people, but if you can get through season one as quickly as possible, then jump into season two. It's it's terrific television. Yeah, and look, it's a really easy binge watch as well. So you oh, probably yeah. don't necessarily want to watch more than like two to three episodes at a time, but it's certainly rewarding. And every episode does stand in its own way. Like it's, as you said, like the production quality on this is incredible. And you've got a whole bunch of seasoned directors as well. So Alan Coulter, who directed a whole bunch of The Sopranos over the years. And I think he did a bunch of Mad Men episodes. Like, he knows what he's doing in this prestige TV space. He's got a couple of episodes here under his belt. And then you've got other people like Seth Gordon's in there as well. Seth Gordon is just a fantastic director. He's he's directed all the episodes that I've watched so far. Um, and his handling of the, the period detail um, is is just fantastic. Yeah, look, I honestly think this was probably my show of last year. And as you said, this is an under-the-radar show. The first couple of episodes, which you said you quite like, I actually think it starts out a little bit slow and really picks up as the show becomes a bit more confident about diving into an alternate reality America. But it's a compelling show, and I think that if you have even a passing interest in wanting to watch anything to do with space travel, definitely give this a look, because I think you're going to be richly rewarded. Now, Simon, before we get to the week ahead, I just want to give a quick promotion for the podcast ahead. So you and I, Simon, we drop a podcast every Friday. We try to get it out by about noonish on Friday. It's good listening. If you're hanging around looking for something to do on the weekend, you're suddenly going to find maybe a new podcast loop here on your feed because on Sunday or Monday, depends when I get around to editing it, you're going to find a brand new podcast sitting in your feed and we're going to talk about the character of Superman. Now, Superman, not the coolest of characters. I fully appreciate Mm. that. 
Okay, like yep. he seems to be a little bit sub dorky, but I think he's a really interesting character as far as uh, pop culture is concerned. You're a film guy, I'm a TV guy. Like this is a character that crosses both of those mediums. Obviously comics, radio serials, serial uh, boxes. Like Superman covers a whole number of different um, you know, media forms. So we're going to talk about all of that and what each of these iterations of the character mean to pop culture broadly and what our thoughts are on the character. And, you know, we're going to delve into Superman. And the reason we're doing that, obviously, is because as part of the week ahead, and this is my segue into our segment here, there's a brand new Superman show coming. So this is going to be called Superman and Lois. Very excited. Superman and Lois is coming to Foxtel Binge this week. Um, I uh, Dan Barrett came to me and said, I love Superman. I identify with Superman. It's because of the tights. Uh, I've got most of the... D- <laughs> I've got most of the different outfits that Superman has worn through the years. Um, let's do something special for Superman, to which I said, well, let's do a very special episode of Screen Watching to celebrate and preview the release of Superman and Lois. So as you say, hopefully maybe Sunday evening, maybe one Monday, you will see in your feed a very special episode of Screen Watching dedicated entirely to Superman. Tell us what you know about Superman and Lois, because I'm seeing the ads come across my my pay TV, um, and I've got to be honest with you, I haven't connected with a lot of the t- the small screen versions of of the Superman mythology since maybe George Reeves. I didn't sort of go with Smallville. I I, I didn't watch Lois and Clark in its day. Um, so, what can you tell us about Superman and Lois? Look very quickly because we will be obviously reviewing this next weekend, uh, next week, and we'll have the Superman special coming ahead. Uh, but basically, Superman and Lois, like yourself, I haven't well. Not necessarily about like the Superman incarnations, where I've watched a fair bit of the George Reeves Superman, and I was a big mm. Lois and Clark guy in the early '90s. Like that's kind of like my version of Superman, just because I like that version of the Daily Planet and the Clark and Lois dynamic and whatnot. The actual Superman stories. And Dean Cain's so political views. I know you're sort of very tight with that. As well. Love the Dean Cain's uh, political views. It's definitely what has me on the 4BC <laughs> on a regular basis. Uh, but <laughs> good grief, we're going to get some letters now. Uh, Superman and Lois, I was very nervous about this because it's a CW DC show. So this comes after, it's part of what they call the Arrowverse. So you've got that show Arrow, which is the Green Arrow show. You've got The Flash, you've got Supergirl, you've got Batgirl, you've got Legends of Tomorrow, you've got Black Lightning, and I feel I've forgotten a title somewhere in amongst all of that. You are doing this off the top of your head, aren't you? You know all these properties. Yeah, I've watched some TV. Wow. The one thing that I haven't really enjoyed is pretty much all of it. Um, so Supergirl, the first few seasons, I found sort of fairly watchable, but not the sort of thing I'd be watching on a weekly basis. And also The Flash, I think, has some good moments here and there. But the rest of them, I just find just really sort of that too... CW. That too CW teenage drama for my taste. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not necessarily after super heroics. Like, I actually kind of like relationship into dynamics, but they just kind of feel a bit cheap and a bit liking an actual texture. I, I don't really enjoy it. And so I was very nervous about Superman and Lois because it has spun very much out of that. And you've got this guy, Tyler, I think his surname is Hoshin? Hoshin? Herklin. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was the kid actor from Road to Perdition, as I learned the other day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really? But anyway, now he's Superman. And he's good. Like, he's a really fun presence on screen. And I don't know the actress playing Lois particularly well, but she looks the part and she seems okay. And that all seemed fine. But the show itself is like, oh, it's a CW Superman show. I'll definitely watch it because, you know, Superman. But, you know, I'm not expecting much. But they've made a very sort of concerted PR effort in the last couple of days to say, look, the Superman show, the 
thing that we're really working off here is shows like Friday Night Lights rather than necessarily the CW shows that you might be expecting. So while this is certainly a CW superhero show, them going out there actively talking about what their inspiration is for the show and what they want to try to get to, that fills me with a fair bit of hope and promise about it. So look, Superman's all about hope and I'm going to go into this with, you know, my eyes wide open, your clear heart, can't lose, all that. Your deep dive. Just before we get emails, the Lois is played by Elizabeth Tullock, who has a long history as Lois. She played Lois Lane on Arrow, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, The Flash, Batwoman, Supergirl, So she's and, and had a recurring role in the Grimm TV series. So that's a good pedigree. I'm keen. Elizabeth Tullock and Tyler Herklin. Yeah. Um, coming up in Superman and Lois. Be sure to tune in for our very special episode of Screen Watching dedicated entirely to the mythology and history and legend of the great man himself, Superman. That'll be in your podcast feeds early next week. Also coming this week on television, a TV series from uh, Netflix called Ginny and Georgia, a mother-daughter story um, about an angsty 15... Basically, it's the Gilmore Girls, but probably a little less artful. I was going to say, yeah, it seems a very, very... (laughs) It's artful than Gilmore Girls. That's a wrap. Um, Ginny and Georgia comes to Netflix. Wait, wait, wait. That that sounds to me like someone who never really actually watched the Gilmore Girls. I didn't know. I saw episodes of the Gilmore Girls. There's women in my life. I had to watch Gilmore Girls. Quite enjoyed it. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> love the love the love the series and, and glad it was rev- rev- um, revived. Uh, Tribes of Europa on Netflix set in 2074. This is more up my alley. This is uh, set in the wake of a mysterious global disaster and war ravages between different tribes. Oh, I am all over tribes of Europa. Do you know anything about this? I know there's tribes and I know there's Europa. That's a good start. All right. What else is coming up? Uh, There's a show called The First Team, which is a series about a uh, young football team in the UK. Uh, Ordinarily, probably not my bag, but it's from the team that did The Inbetweeners. And I'm pretty keen to give that one a look. Sure. Uh, there's a new show on Amazon Prime Video called Tell Me Your Secrets. Uh, coming to Foxtel and Binge is the HBO documentary series The Lady and the Dale. Now, this is a show about a... Do you remember the car? I'm guessing it's called The Dale. Yes, it uh, is. It's like a three-wheeled car. Yep, and the woman who the woman who invented it is Elizabeth Carmichael. Um, I do know about The Dale. I'm not a car guy, but I know of The Dale and its place in sort of car history, so I'm quite looking forward to The Lady and the Dale. Yeah, so Elizabeth Carmichael, the uh, figure behind the promotion of this car, uh, was obviously factored in the same way that like your Steve Jobs is like the face of Apple through Mm. like the 80s and 90s. Like she was the face of this car. But what you may not realize is that Elizabeth Carmichael actually transgendered and the show explores like the gender identity of this character, uh, real life person. Uh, So how that impacted her and also about the great scam that was the Dale. Well, that's going to be interesting. I'll be watching that. That's yeah. on Foxtel and the Binge Networks. I'm just going to backtrack a second. I've just noticed that Tell Me Your Secrets, the new Amazon Prime uh, series, stars the beautiful Amy Brenneman, who I had a huge crush on from her NYPD Blue stage. Um, you'll also know her from Judging Amy, of course. So that is a big plus for Tell Me Your Secrets on Amazon Prime, an intense, morally complex thriller revolving around a trio of characters. Okay, I'm in for Tell Me Your Secrets as well. What else is happening? Well, I would also talk her up from a little show called The Leftovers. Yes, of course. one of the finest TV outings of ever. Yep, that's a big plus. Um, and then the last thing is a show that I haven't seen yet, but I'm very keen to give it a look. It's called Time Warp, The Greatest Cult Films. And it's a documentary series currently playing on the SBS Viceland. 
And it's basically interviews with a who's who of um, cult movies. So, you know, your John Waters, your Joe Dante's and whatnot. Joe Dante's my man, the man who directed The Howling, Inner Space, some of my favourite movies, The Burbs. He's discussing, he's got a, a huge encyclopedic knowledge of, of cult films. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he's joined by a great many names to discuss in this first episode, The Midnight Movie Madness, those crazy cult films that came out of the midnight um, uh, flea pit sort of cinema crowds of the 70s and 80s uh, and then episodes moving forward has a lot of really interesting stuff that film buffs like you and me really love some movies going straight to streaming this week there's an aussie sci-fi film called uh 2067 so try that again there's a new Aussie sci-fi film called 2067 starring Cody Smith-McPhee as a time-travelling uh, soldier of sorts who has to go back to a, a period where mankind has destroyed the Earth and he's got to try and fix it. Uh, good Aussie cast, Ryan Quanton, Deborah Mailman, and a beautiful-looking film. I had a look at this uh, when it premiered for the Adelaide Film Festival last year. Um, very spectacular beautifully rendered special effects so catch that on netflix for very soon yeah uh, there's also flora and ulysses which is a kids film playing on disney plus and i care a lot for magic squirrel it's a squirrel film it's got a squirrel in it how good can it be it's going to be does perfect. it have a moose that's the question uh there's also i care a lot on amazon prime video and something which we erroneously put into our list of movies going to streaming which should have been in tv shows uh it's the muppet show five seasons of glorious muppets never before found on streaming uh, and this is including two seasons that hadn't been released on DVD, but you can watch it wow. as of later today on Disney+. Plus. I'm very excited for The Muppet Show. It was a huge part of my my uh, formative years as a young man. Uh, the humour is timeless, and the great Jim Henson, God rest his soul, was uh, a true genius. Yeah, and also for people that are listening to a podcast such as this, worth noting just the sheer volume of just great actors that were just hanging around the UK during the time they were filming the series that they just brought onto the show. It's like awesome. Wells is in there, for example. Like it's a grace mm -hmm. of who's who of, you know, 60s and 70s. From the period. Yeah. Yep. Americana. Uh, there's things playing in the cinema we need to get through pretty quickly because we're running out of time on this pod. The Little Things is a new B thriller starring a lot of A-list actors. Denzel Washington, Jared Leto, Rami Malek are in there. Um, this is the sort of stuff that hits cinemas when you're in the February doldrums. Truth, there's been a lot of doldrums at the movies over the last uh, 12 months with the, the COVID shutdown. But The Little Things, despite some name actors, um, doesn't shouldn't ruffle too many feathers. It'll be... Uh, It'll be in the home video platforms in no time at all. Yeah, I mean, it's been a year of doldrums. Uh, some docos coming mm. up. We've got the Truffle Hunters. And then there's also Zapper, which is the new documentary about, you can guess who that's about, uh, but directed by Alex Winter. <laughs> Alex Winter is one of the great documentary filmmakers and his account of the life of Frank Zappa, the uh, really out there musical icon, is worth checking out. And I want to double back to Truffle Hunters just quickly. This is um, the story of the men who hunt for the prized white Albert truffle. Um, who with their dogs head out late at night so that no one can see where they're going to get this extraordinarily expensive vegetable? Is it a root? I don't know what it is. What's a, what's a truffle? Uh, don't ask me these questions. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great documentary. Um, and also Days of Bagnold Summer, a great coming-of-age story starring a young Earl Cave, son of Nick Cave. Um, and this is the directing debut of In Between Us star Simon Bird, second In Between Us mentioned for the show. Um, this is the story of a kid who was set to go off on his holidays to his father's place in America, but uh, things fall apart and he's left with his spending summer with his bit of a dag of a mum played by Monica Dolan. So, yeah, that should be a fun film.
in terms of retrospectives, we've got The Third Man. The um, We mentioned Awesome Wells earlier as well. Uh, the Awesome Wells film where he's starring as Harry Lyme. Classic film. It's playing at the Ritz. It's playing at the Classic in Melbourne and playing at the Cameo. Great to see that on the big screen. It's also great to see Contempt on the big screen. This is Jean-Luc Godard's first colour film. It stars Jack Palance, Michel or Michel Piccoli and a stunning Bridget Bardot. It's playing at the Golden Age Cinema in Sydney on Saturday the 20th at 3.30. So get along to that one. Yep. And then we've got the Jewish Film Festival, which has its closing night this weekend. The closing night production being the presentation of the first three episodes of season three of Stissel, the very popular uh, small screen film on the big screen. Looking forward to that. Um, that's playing around Australia. If you're at in Melbourne, go to the Classic Cinemas in Lido. Sydney, it's the Ritz and the Roseville Cinema. Canberra's at Dendy Cinema. Perth, viewers can see that at the Lunar Palace Cinemas at Leaderville and in Brisbane, the New Farm Cinemas. Those uh, venues are all screening the Jewish Film Festival, a collection of great Jewish-themed films from around the world. Indeed, and today is February 19, as we record this, and we've got a whole bunch of on-this days that we want to get through. We've got the very first episode of Parkinson in 1971, so that's 40 years of Parkinson. (laughs) Oh, my God, that's extraordinary. In 1985, the British soap opera East Enders premiered on the BBC. Yep, uh, pick up your chainsaws, because in 1993 we had Army of Darkness being released on this date. On this day, and then in 1999, gee, it's a big day for cult movies. Um, In 1999, Office Space and Rushmore, two films that went on to huge cult status, they were both released on this day. I saw Rushmore at the uh, Dendy Cinemas in Brisbane a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Big crowd turned up for it. But in comparison, I saw Office Space also in a Brisbane cinema. I think it was like a like an event cinema in Capalaba back in Brisbane. Uh, I was the only person in the theatre for it. And I think that was pretty much evident when you saw that film stop playing about two days later. And I saw it on the first day. Both films were box office disappointments in their day, but went on to a long life, first on, on home video and then back in cult cinemas. Birthdays today, uh, the very funny, the very talented Jeff Daniels, star of Something Wild, Dumb and Dumber, Speed... Uh, most recently, the Comey Chronicles articles, the story of, of, of Comey and his uh, role in the uh, Russian investigation. Yeah, uh, you got Justine Bateman from Family's Highs. And the lovely Millie Bobby Brown, who our younger viewers and nerds like me know from the Stranger Things TV series. She was born in 2004 on this day. Happy birthday, Millie Bobby Brown. Look, I've never heard of that show, but man, do I love that Godzilla movie. <laughs> She was great in that too. Big and will she ever play Princess Leia, which the internet is screaming out for? She seems like the perfect cast to play young Princess Leia. Come on, Hollywood, get your act together. Uh, yes, but also we don't need to see that. It's fine. I like Millie. I like Princess Leia. We don't need that to happen. You know, you need a pair of those rose-coloured glasses you keep talking about. You really do <laughs> need to get to see the world with a this less cynical sort of approach. Love life, Dan. Love life. Ugh. Anyway, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week, I guess, with another podcast. No, we've got two podcasts next week. We're doing that Superman thing, and then we're doing this podcast. All in that voice. And then we'll be back here next week. (laughs) This has been... Tell us about where we can see Dan Barrett's... uh, Uh, You can find it on all your podcast sites, leave reviews. It helps people find it. Um, I do a very exciting newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. You can find that at alwaysbewatching.com for a daily synopsis of the 10 most interesting news stories related to screen culture, TVs, film, oh I guess God. VR. Simon, you do a website as well. Tell us about it. <laughs> 
Screen space, screen-space.net is where you can hear all my rantings and ravings in written form. Also get your tickets to the German Sci-Fi Showcase, which happens on February 27 here in Sydney. Tickets through Eventbrite, German Sci-Fi Showcase. Thank you, Dan. Sounds fascinating. We'll be back this weekend with a Superman podcast <laughs> and then the regular podcast next Friday. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. It's been a pleasure. See you, mate.